Okay, so welcome back to Between the Lines. This week we're talking about the reading wars. So Joseph and I have both been super interested in a podcast we found recently called Sold a Story, which is a documentary podcast about something called the reading wars. So basically what happened is there was a a really major controversy between different schools of thought on the best ways to teach reading. And a journalist called Emily Hanford covered basically this uh, discussion between those who were proponents of the whole language approach, which encourages sort of an intuitive approach to reading, very focused on the lifestyle of reading, not so much focused on the nuts and bolts of reading, particularly of phonics that became popular, I believe, in the 80s. And then uh, the method that preceded that and also followed it, which is phonics itself, which is learning about the the sounds of different words, how they follow along with one another, and explicitly articulating that to students and teaching that, drilling that basically for students. So we were extremely interested in that. And the biggest question we have for today is, why the whole language approach was so successful for so long, why so many people even to this day have been bought into it, when, as Emily Hanford points out, it's not necessarily backed by science. So that's the question we're diving into today. And one thing I wanted to just clarify about that question, and and what's so astounding to me about the whole debate is, it's not just that it's not backed by science, because there are issues as we'll talk about, I think, with the so-called science of reading approach um, and how that's framed, but it just didn't work. Like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make any intuitive sense. And when you look at what uh, balanced literacy is and whole language is, but it just wasn't like kids weren't learning to read. Um, literacy rates have been going down. Um, and so, like, Again, why was this method so popular? I think it's a fascinating question, and I think it exposes some really interesting um, problems with how people look at education in general and can inform how we should approach education and and look at it and avoid making mistakes where we just are teaching kids methods that don't work at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we want to encourage all of our listeners to to brush up on the podcast, take a look at it. Uh, read some of the articles that are about there. We don't really want to recap the entirety of the whole Reading Wars saga. There are a lot of different characters within it. There's a lot of interesting history of it, but we're really particularly interested in the implications, like you said, of that history. Like, what does this mean for people teaching reading today and how should they be informed by these two different methods? Yeah. And what lessons can we learn um, to apply to our approach to education so we don't make mistakes in other disciplines too, because I think there are some um, kind of false premises in how people approach the reading wars that I'm seeing in other other subjects as well. Right. I also think, just to make sort of a side note, the um, the whole framing of it as the reading wars is really interesting to me, because the idea of culture wars is very big right now. And it's interesting that differing schools of thought on methods of teaching reading is now thought of as like a war. And I think that both of us are probably not super happy with that framing of the, 
of the question of the discussion as kind of a war. Uh, so just to be clear, we don't we don't want to have a reading war. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, our podcast is called Between the Lines because we don't want to take, you know, um, we don't want to look at things as one side versus the other, just because often that means you don't even consider the valid points of the other side. And I think we'll tease some of that out today in our discussion of the reading wars. Um, because it, it's interesting to examine the whole language points and, and there, there are some valid things that they have to say. And so it's worth like, when you think of it as a war, you often dismiss the other side out of hand and we don't want to do that. Um, so I think one of the interesting questions you raised uh, in, in how we wanted to discuss this is, um, what made the balanced literacy approach so appealing, right? What What is it about some of these characters like Lucy Calkins that resonated so much with, with teachers? Um, because their goal was to help children build a joyful identity as a reader, which sounds pretty good. Um, that sounds like a nice thing to aim for. Um, so what what do you think was so appealing about it, Emily? Right. Yeah. Well, I think it was coming on the heels of some more rote approaches to teaching. So in, in say like the, I think it's the sixties and seventies, there were the Dick and Jane books, which were like repeating the word over and over. And those were in a certain way, like an early kind of sight reading type of teaching reading. Uh, and then that was also following on the heels of a lot of really drill based. A lot of education used to be a lot more drill based. You know, you picture like the kids getting, you know, slapped over the wrist with the ruler and that kind of thing. And I think there was a reaction to that where people said, okay, one of the most beautiful things about adult life is a passion for reading. Can we instill a passion for reading in students and not cause them to hate reading by being by being really sort of intense and and regimented about our teaching. So I think that that was some of the inspiration that it was coming from. Right. Like if, you know, I've been trying to reflect on my experience learning to read. And I remember my mom used these books. I think they were called the Bob books, if I remember correctly. And there were these short little things. And if I can remember anything, like they didn't have stories because they were structured around phonetical sounds so you were you know you weren't getting the most entertaining things to read uh, because the author was writing something that had words that shared sounds and as an adult you would find that painful right to try and like that's not what we read we don't read books when we're older for that so why are we putting kids through that experience of reading things that don't have interesting stories or interesting meanings why are we subjecting them to to this sort of painful um painful experience when they could be exploring you know really interesting stories so the the emphasis was on like extracting meaning and joy from from reading rather than having a painful experience at least that was the perspective so is that a good summary of kind of how you see the history of this movement and where it kind of emerged from yeah, I think so. And uh, something that I read that I think was helpful too on this perspective was uh, there's a New York Times article on one of the main gurus of this particular school of thought, which is called the whole language method and emerged in the 80s. 
It's about Lucy Calkins, who's considered to be sort of the major guru and who actually walked back some of her support for this method. And the New York Times just says it very simply. They say the goal was to help children to build a joyful identity as a reader. And I think that is something that we could all get behind when you put it that way. The issue was that after this had been promoted for a while and had been implemented in schools for a while, people realized that the kids who were trying to learn with this method uh, couldn't read, <laughs> which right. is essential for uh, teaching reading. And I think we should say a little bit more about what the whole language, whole language method entailed, which was a lot of figuring out words from context. There was a major element of encouraging kids to have a lifestyle of reading. So, you know, you have a classroom full of cozy chairs and lots of books for kids to choose from. Kids can choose whatever books they want. And the biggest method that they use is just sort of checking the context, seeing whether the word makes sense within the sentence and more or less guessing what the word is. And if, and also using the pictures in the book to guess what the word is. Yeah. And, and for the audience, if they haven't listened to um, sold a story, which is the, the podcast we've been referring to, that was called the three queuing method. Um, so you would look for context cues, right? Uh, whether it's the picture, whether it's the words around, um, the one that you get stuck on or, um, you know, what the, the word starts with. And then as a last resort, some of the systems encourage phonics. Um, but I, I think what would be helpful is to give like an example of the kind of lesson because in um in the the podcast sold the story to Emily Hanford does get into like what does an actual example of a lesson look like in this balanced literacy approach and um you know the the teacher is taking the, the students through what they would do if they get to a word that they don't know and what's really interesting is what the instructor is asked to do is actually cover the word up so they're reading a sentence they're reading reading a story and she covers one of the words and then she guides the students through trying to figure out what word might come next. And that seems a little crazy on the, the face of it because um, you're asking them to guess what word comes next without actually seeing it, which begs the question of if that's even reading. And then she takes you through the, in the lesson, you know, you look at the picture to see what word might come next. And maybe you see that there's a pony in the picture or a horse looks like a horse or a pony. And then you maybe un you look around the 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 word that's covered up, and maybe it says something like "Billy rode the," and then the word's covered <laughs> up. So you start thinking of what are things that Billy might be able to ride. And then you look at the picture, and you see that there's a horse, so it's not going to be bicycle. Maybe it's horse. And then maybe you uncover the first letter, and you see that it starts with an H. And so you rule out pony, and you the students all guess horse together. So that's kind of like a sa sample of, of what the lesson might look like in the, in the queuing method. Right, right, exactly. And you can see from that perspective, how, you know, like the, the idea is that the child's going to get less frustrated. I think like they can, they can pick up these cues from the pictures, that kind of thing. But this is also where it gets kind of philosophical, which is when I heard that I was like, Oh, you mean they're not reading. <laughs> because for me, reading is when you know what the words on the page say. But this is actually a different approach to a really fundamental level, which is basically like, well, if you get kind of a vibe or a gist of what the words are saying, then you're reading. 
which probably works to a certain point. But as as people started to realize, it actually doesn't work in the long term because you're you can't. Maybe you can read a lot of books about horses, but if you start reading books about ponies, your your whole framework is going to fall apart because you can't tell from the picture whether it's a horse or a pony. You know, so you can't really use the existing reading capacity that you have to expand into new horizons of reading, which I think is, for me, a really important part of what reading is. Well, and some of the advocates of balanced literacy and whole language would even go so far to say it doesn't matter if you get the word right, whether you choose pony or horse, um, because they a big part of what motivates them is extracting meaning. So if you get the general meaning that the author was conveying, it doesn't matter if you properly read the word. So in that particular example, uh, now not all of them advocate for this, but some of them do and would say that um, meaning is the most important thing. And so you don't even need to read the word uh, properly, but you you also bring up right. another point that I want to um, right exactly dive into, and which is and I think we should uh, what are do a little kind of sidebar these on premises? The like what are what are they basing learning and whole language? Um, so whole language whole is approach the full. On. Oh, I think the, I lost you for a second. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I I wanted to just touch on like what motivates them or or what their what their philosophy behind reading is because I think there's something really interesting about how they think reading works and learning works that informs um, uh, what what approach they ultimately came up with. And, and one of the main uh, premises behind whole language and balanced literacy is that reading is a natural process similar to learning to speak, right? So they would argue that, um, you know, we don't teach kids to speak. You just talk around them. And eventually they start saying their first words and um, they, they're able to to speak to you. And that is definitely true. But where they what they argue is that reading is similar and reading is something you just pick up naturally. And that's one of the reasons why they they really advocate for creating an environment of literacy where if we surround you with enough of the books and we give you some tips like the queuing systems, you will pick up to read naturally. And so that's one important premise. And then the other one is that uh, what I, I've been thinking of is like curiosity is king. So what drives most learning in general is the curiosity of the child, this innate curiosity, and that that's the most important thing to fan, right? So what's most important is to give them interesting choices, interesting books to read, and um, their curiosity will then drive them to pick up that skill. And we don't need to necessarily be heavy handed with our instruction and provide them with any tools. We just need to fan the flames of curiosity. I think that's a really important premise behind what's driving this movement and what's so appealing to that movement. Because when you tell that and you, you hear interviews with these teachers, uh, that sounds pretty enticing to them. Right. And I think we should definitely give credit where credit is due, which is that that does work for some kids. That is how some kids learn to read. At least that's how they appear to learn to read. It may be that they're learning how to sound out words on their own from context and because they're surrounded by readers and they're surrounded by a, an experience of reading and that kind of thing. Uh, the thing that's clear, though, from the outcomes for students is that that's not the quickest way to get to learning to read, and it's also not effective for everyone. So 
if you try to use it for everyone, some kids are going to get left behind and they're just not going to learn to read. Yeah. And one of the things I've been trying to reflect on is how I learned to read because I don't really remember, right? I don't, I don't remember phonics. And, um, as an adult, I don't sound out words anymore or very rarely, right? Like Mm -hmm. we've already done the work to kind of, uh, encode a lot of those words into our, our memory. So we don't need to sound out each word we come across. Um, I don't know. Do you have, do you have any memories of learning to do phonics? So weirdly enough, I do. My, my parents were really into phonics. And so I just, I remember we had a lot of tapes, a lot of phonics type songs, a lot of phonics flashcards. And I remember that pretty vividly. I also remember early reader books and getting rewards for that kind of thing. But I think the most interesting thing for this particular topic is that for a very long time, I think through kindergarten, maybe midway through the first year of kindergarten, I read only out loud. I remember my I would be downstairs and I'd just be reading myself a book out loud and it was always out loud and I didn't start silently reading for a long time. And I still see myself as very much an auditory learner and I in a way kind of like hear the sounds of the words as I'm reading them. So I think this phonics thing for me personally as a kid was very, very intuitive and it it really tied into the way that I read anyway, but I don't know if that's true for all kids. Mm. And one thing I think is important to just be aware of as adults. And one lesson I've been taking from diving into the reading wars is to try and separate our experience as adults from what kind of experience we should provide to, to children. Right. So like I was kind of saying, as adults, we don't sound out words, right. We don't read out loud to, to anymore, like to ourselves necessarily. And so what we do to enjoy reading or to read as adults is different than, uh, or, or is not necessarily what we should prescribe to students. Right. So, um, I think an overly simplistic way to look at this, I'm not suggesting this is how the balanced liturgy literacy folks look at it, but like it would be incorrect to try and project that onto kids. So to say, well, I don't sound out words anymore. I just sit down and open a book and read it. So let me just give that to a student and they'll, you know, have the same experience in me as me. Um, and so it's important to try and figure out what's required to get to the point you are as an adult, not just to project your adult context onto the kids. Right, right, exactly. And I think that it comes from a good desire, which is to give kids the experience that you have as an adult of enjoying reading. And I think that's laudable and makes sense. But I think in my experience, for example, and I don't know if this is true for you too, I do love reading and it did come from phonics. And I think maybe the adults in my life who were adults when I was a child also learned in a pretty rote way to read. And then they've become people who love reading in the long term. But maybe there is kind of an irreducible amount of work or effort or struggle that's going to be involved in that before you can just become an intuitive lover of reading. Right. And, you know, through the example you were actually sharing, too, I think there's an important lesson, which is. Uh, it doesn't sound like you had like a horrible childhood where phonics was, um, you know, a painful activity for you. I'm sure there were moments where you didn't want to do it. And, um, you know, your parents had to 
um, had to encourage you maybe or motivate you more strongly, but like, um, I don't know, singing those songs, doing phonics there, there's, um, it can be an enjoyable experience. And one thing that I think is important when evaluating educational techniques is to separate like particular experiences or instructors from a method, right? And if a method works, but maybe can be applied in a, a really painful way, um, it doesn't mean that the whole method has to be thrown out, right? Can uh, can we make it enjoyable? Can we find a way to, to um, make phonics fun if it works? Right, definitely. And I think that feeds into the fact that there's just, there are multiple stages of education and there are also multiple pieces of it. And maybe not every single piece is going to appeal to every single student equally. Uh, and that's okay. You know, like I, I loved all the reading stuff and I hated all of the math stuff. And, and that was just kind of how I was a second. And I think that's going to be the case for everyone. There's just going to be different things that are going to appeal to them. Um, and I think it's important to think about the student's experience, but I think you can put the student's experience, basically just put the cart ahead of the horse where you're so well, worried. Let me Go ask ahead. you a follow up on that. Cause I want to yeah. make sure I understand what you're suggesting. Do you mean that if it's not working, you back off or that, you know, it's still something necessary for them to learn and you just push on, even if the particular child's having a, a more you know, negative experience with it. Well, I think all I was saying just then is that there's going to be different things that are going to work. Um, there are different elements of a balanced education that different students are going to enjoy more. Okay. So there are different topics that you might enjoy more. And the fact that not all the students love it equally doesn't mean you should stop the method. I do think that if you have a student who's particularly struggling with a particular method of teaching, it would probably be helpful to slow down and and work with them on that. But I think something that I learned as I was researching for this podcast and sort of reading some of the background is that um, it, it actually works better for students to be brought up to the level of their peers. So there's a there's a leveled reading approach, which I actually saw. I don't think I really experienced it, but I do remember my my siblings having these books that have accelerated reader or whatever levels and they have numbers on them or letters and then this, the idea is that the student is going to pick up the books that are at his or her reading level and they'll read those and they'll feel encouraged because they're capable of reading those and then they'll move on to harder books as they go along and i think that that can be really really useful but the article that i was reading was pointing out that actually um if you look at educational outcomes it is more helpful for students to be brought along to the level of their peers even if it is more challenging for them than it is for their peers, even if it's more frustrating, because in the long run, they're going to, they're going to come up to grade level in a lot of cases. Right. So I, I definitely agree with that. And the, the main point that uh, you started by making was that it's not that if somebody's struggling with reading, you can just say, well, that's not for them. They're more of a math person. So um, <laughs> right. yeah, that's you know, not what I mean. Yeah. We'll, we'll do math with them and, you know, we'll, we'll just play to their interests I think your point, which I totally agree with, is um, that the um, it's okay if if not every moment of a child's day is you know completely exciting and and um, uh, you know they're fully mode like I want to suggest motivation is not important, but like um, sometimes they're going to have bad days and that's okay, right? Or and some kids are going to be more enthusiastic about subjects than others, and again that's okay. 
um, uh, they will likely be very grateful to have learned to read, right? And to have learned um, literature or history or math or whatever the subject is that they don't have an inclination towards, and they'll specialize a little bit later on. But again, I don't want to suggest that, um, you know, motivation is not important or that reading should be forced down um, a child's throat. It's just that, you know, it's okay. We we don't have to customize education to every child. Um, and it's okay if they're not equally all as enthusiastic about it, but it's still important for them to learn to read, I think. Right. Right. And I think that is a good segue into the question of like, is it possible to overreact to some of this? So, so again, to go back to the theme of the reading wars, you know, if we're generally of the opinion that whole language or balanced literacy methods don't work, is it possible to overreact in the direction of phonics and lose some of those insights? And I think it probably is. I think that it, and I do see this happen frequently in different ideological contexts for education. People kind of overreact to what they think is wrong and then say, you know, we don't care about whether you like reading. We think right. you should just read like it's your job and you're working in the coal mine and we're going to drill you every day on fragments of words and we're never going to read a book. You know, so I think it's, I think that's something we should dive into next is what are, what are some pitfalls of, of what could happen if you go too far in the other direction. Oh, sure. Yeah. Cause I think what a lot of the balanced literacy folks would argue is correctly is ultimately the goal is to learn, to read, to extract meaning. Right. So um, when some of the arguments I've heard is when they look at phonics um, phonics is about connecting the sound parts to these words that, you know, and but but fundamentally, phonics is not about meaning. It's about um, interpreting these letters on a page and turning them into sounds. And so, um, they their concern is where where are you getting the meaning from? And my kind of answer is well, phonics is necessary, but certainly not sufficient, right? Like you need phonics, and, and this is a point that Emily Hanford makes in the podcast, like she does try and make this cautionary tale of like the, the answer is not like do phonics and don't care about meaning. It's right. It's phonics is such a clearly valuable skill for the decoding of the words and connecting those to, um, to language that, you know, but, but there, there is more that you need uh, for sure. Right. Right. And I think maybe the best way to, to frame it is, phonics can be a stepping stone into a life where you do deeply care about literature. Like I've, I've gotten a PhD in Shakespeare now and I started with phonics, you Mm -hmm. know? So, and, and to me, those things are continuous. They're not, they're not necessarily separate. And I do think that learning phonics was probably not as enjoyable as, you know, reading Shakespeare for pleasure or something like that, but they're all kind of part of one whole. And so we shouldn't divide the two up and say, okay, we're so focused on being science focused and teaching kids the nuts and bolts of reading that it's not important that we see this as tending toward a goal. And the goal is a balanced life that is full of joyful reading. The question is just how is the best way to get there? For sure. And um, here's some resources we can share with the audience, if they want to dive into this more, I definitely recommend looking at um, the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Um, yes, they are mostly about writing, but they deal with just language, arts in general, and 
there is a lot of overlap between reading and writing and some of the foundation, uh, foundational skills and just elements that you need to be a successful reader and writer. And one thing Andrew Pudiwa talks a lot about is the absolute value and importance of reading aloud and just la- like exposing kids to language. And Emily Hanford touches on this in the podcast a little bit, but but um, for phonics to work, you need to have a database of words in your head already, right? Because mm-hmm. what phonics is doing is you're looking at letters on a page, you're learning the sound parts that make them up, and then you're putting them together until you get the sound that the entire word makes as a whole. Well, if there's no word that you know, like if you've never heard the word mom before or said the word mom before, you might be able to say the sound, but it's devoid of meaning. And so Mm -hmm. for phonics to really work, the words that you're decoding from the page, turning into sounds, um, turning into a whole sound unit, you actually need to know those words or at least the majority of them, right? When you learn to sound out the word cat, it's more effective if you actually know what a cat is and you've heard that word before. And so what Andrew Pudiwa really recommends is reading aloud to your kids, exposing them to, to language, even before they can read inundated, not inundated, but like exposing them to tons and tons and tons of language so that you're filling their head with tons of words, essentially. And he even recommends, um, continuing to read aloud, even as they're able to read and, Mm. and, and kind of, um, taking them up a level almost. So if you had like a group of children uh, of, of kids, not, reading to the lowest level, but actually reading above the lowest level so that the youngest kids are being exposed to language above their reading level. Because as they start to read, that will essentially, you're like backfilling all the words that they'll get exposed to in the future. And that's a super, super important point. Um, They make, uh, there's also a great podcast called Read Aloud Revival that really advocates for this idea of listening to audiobooks with your kids, um, reading aloud to them. Because again, to your point, Emily, it it would be a mistake to just say, okay, great. I just have to get phonics into my kid as quickly as possible. And that's all I need to do. Well, if you haven't exposed them to lots of language, you, you phonics might not actually help. Right. That's a really good point. Yeah. Because there is, this is again, another insight that I think we should should note about the whole the whole language approach is that there is something to the idea that kids do naturally learn speech from their parents. They do naturally kind of learn that by osmosis. And though it's just turned out to not be true that that's the way that people learn to read, it can be the way that people learn a love of reading or the way that they learn to expand their vocabulary or things like that, as you've mentioned. For sure. And you can certainly model for your kids a love of reading and um you know demonstrate to them what it looks like to really enjoy enjoy reading and motivate them to learn the skills they need in order to read um but you also need to arm them with the the actual foundations like phonics to to be able to decode words and you know come like be able to tackle any word that comes their way Definitely. Are there any other uh, resources that you wanted to mention to the listeners? Well, before we do that, um, you know, we've been, we just talked about what uh, is valid about the balanced literacy side of things, like giving them a fair shake. I also think it's important to point out what, you know, a pitfall of 
I think the science of reading and the phonics approach that's prominent right now. So uh, for anyone that hasn't listened to the podcast, uh, sold the story, the, one of the vehicles, but through which phonics is making a comeback is what's called the science of reading. And this is a movement that's essentially saying, Hey, we've proven that phonics works now using science. And one of the methods that they've done is they've, they've used an MRI to, to scan a, a person's brain while they're learning to read. And, and they've done some work to prove out that phonics is more effective. And they, they call this the science of reading and they say, see phonics, phonics works. And I want to just caution people about that because um, I think it gives a false impression of kind of the standard of proof that we need to prove something. Um, I was talking with somebody that I really respect in education and that was one of his big takeaways is it's like, it's not that as soon as we looked at the brain, we knew phonics worked. We've actually mm -hmm. known phonics has been the right approach for, for long before we had MRI machines. And I wanted to share just one example of how to think about that. Um, just to kind of like help, help think about what science is and how to approach knowledge in general. Um, saying that we didn't know phonics worked until we saw the brain would be like saying that we didn't know the earth was round until we, we saw it from the moon. Right. Right. That's not the burden. The burden of proof is not seeing like science is not the process of seeing things directly with your own eyes. A lot of what science is, is about taking things that we can observe and inferring from it. So um, that would just be one thing I would caution people of too, is like, yeah, it's very cool that they can, look at the brain now, do MRI scans and, and confirm um, what's going on with phonics and how that works. But that doesn't mean that until we had that um, phonics, you know, we didn't know that the jury was still out. There was lots and lots of evidence that phonics is a more effective way of teaching people how to read. Right. And I think this taps into some bigger picture questions that we have on this podcast, which have to do with like, what are the standards of what makes a good education? What what are the criteria for things that we can say that we know? And I think that in modern life, generally, the criterion for something being something that we know is that it's measurable by science. And that just is a is a uniquely contemporary way of of evaluating what's true and what's false. And it just hasn't been hasn't been true for for thousands of years of history, that was not what people considered to be the most important when you evaluate whether something's true or not. So it, it, again, it's it, to, to put a fine point on it, it's sort of a materialistic way of thinking about learning to say, I need the MRI scan of the brain to know whether this works rather than having a kind of holistic question of like, okay, in the practice, do I see this working? Hmm. Um, that's an interesting point. Like, I don't know if I fully agree with, well, there's elements I definitely agree with about that statement. Um, I think the MRI example is a misunderstanding of the approach of science rather than overly reliant on science. Hmm. Um, hmm. And I, I do, I think I see where you're going, but I might have a different take on it. Like, I, I think we've been spoiled with a lot of um, just the modern technology we have and in particular uh, our ability to create visuals for every concept 
um, that we, I think what it's done is it's caused us not to appreciate um, what proving something scientifically actually is. And so mm-hmm. as a result, we become a little bit more skeptical and we're, I think to what you're saying that we, we might become less ready to accept um, certain things that are anecdotally true. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe the holistic approach, but, but I think my, my main point is there, there's kind of a middle ground where, you, you know, um, there's probably something to a, an anecdotal story, right? It's worth exploring more, but I would still always argue it's better to prove it scientifically if you can, um, and continue to get proof. I just don't think the burden of proof or the standard of proof is seeing it or scanning the brain, for example, in the case of the reading wars. Hmm. Yeah. Could you, could you elaborate on that as far as like, what do you see as like a balanced scientific proof that this works? Like, would you say it's just the, the fact that it's been used successfully over a period of years or is that more anecdotal? Um, because I don't know, I don't actually have a good backup for, I was just sort of like spinning out into some themes that we had discussed before. I don't know that I can really describe what I mean by uh, a non-scientific sense that <laughs> that uh, phonics literacy works. I don't know that I really have that. But I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on what you think like a balanced scientific argument for phonics would have been before these MRI scans. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it would be about setting up some sort of experiment, right? Where uh, you try out both methods and you have a, a goal that you expect to happen and you observe um, those methods being applied to a group of people. So, uh, you know, teaching phonics versus balanced literacy to a group, trying to control for it, right? One of the the big challenges with assessing these methods is some kids do pick up phonics naturally, right? They, they, if they're exposed to it at home or, um, you know, they start to just realize as they're going through the process of memorizing words in the whole language method, that there are these sound relationships, about a third of kids do pick it up naturally, which clouds the data, right? Makes it hard to, to, um, be objective. But I, I think I'm not an expert in this, but I think the scientific method is really about like, um, uh, figuring out what you expect to happen, like your hypothesis, setting up the experiment to control for it and, and kind of isolating the cause and effect that's going on. So you don't need to scan the brain to do what I just described. Um, that could be one piece of evidence you eventually use, but um, prior to that, uh, you could have tested reading methods on on children and just seen what's what's more effective. And that would have still been scientific. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think we're actually kind of both getting at the same thing, which is almost kind of like a common sense thing, you know, like, like a science probably at its best is kind of built on common sense. It's like, okay, well, we could see whether this is working for a large group of students. And then if it is, we could keep doing it. And if it's not, we could stop, which is common sense to you and I, but interestingly, it doesn't seem that common sense necessarily has ruled the day in discourse about reading up to now, at least, especially in the last hundred years or so. It sounds like it's been much more based on sort of imposing an ideology of this is how I think reading should work 
rather than really observing what's actually happening there. One thing that uh, I think sent a chill down my spine was a, was a line in, uh, in the podcast from Gay Sue Pinnell, who was a big advocate. I'm not sure actually uh, may still be a big advocate for uh, the whole language approach and uh, said, so we cannot count on science and must accept its findings tentatively. Remember that science can yield some universally accepted findings that looking back a century seem actually bizarre, all of which are kind of true in a way, but are really just ideology masked in, in what sounds like an opinion, you know, because really it's just a rejection of something like common sense. If you look at the outcomes, students aren't really reading. And that's not just science. It is science, but it's science in the best sense of the word, which is just like, you didn't need the MRI scan in order to do that. That's just true. And if you go down the road of saying, oh, well, I'm only going to accept this common sense scientific finding tentatively, you do run the risk of, of losing your grip on reality a little bit. Yeah. And maybe that can take us to our, our big takeaways. I know for me, uh, one of the big things this podcast, uh, uh, the, the Reading Wars helped me um, appreciate was the effect of an ideology, but also romanticizing a, a kind of education and projecting that. Um, so having this uh, idealized view of what learning is like or what an experience is like as an adult and then projecting that onto the kids and then not looking at evidence, right? And being too married to the ideology, it just has these horrible results, right? You just have it so that now a few generations of our kids have not learned to read properly or at all. And that's so destructive to their lives. So not only are you not achieving the idealized ideal, but, um, you know, you're, you're, if, if you stick to it, you're doing further harm after that. So that's kind of one of my, my biggest takeaways from listening to this podcast is to see the, the ideologues that put it forward, but also the teachers who got caught up in the, in the vision, right? It, it's so tempting to, um, to, uh, you know, when you have something romanticized to want to promote it and advocate for it. Uh, but you got to look at it objectively and try and prove that it actually is true uh, before you do a lot of damage. Right. Definitely. Yeah. I think something I really drew from it was um, just this sense that we can agree a lot on ends but not on means and that the mm. means conversations can get really heated when really, and I agree with you, it's important not to idealize the state of being a child, what education could be, anything like that. But there is something positive in the vision of it would be good to be a good reader who enjoys reading. And I think everyone kind of agrees on that. It's just sometimes people get so caught up in this idea that their means is the only way to achieve that end, that they can actually fail to achieve the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really like that way of putting it. Um, yeah, not um, kind of decoupling method from goals, right? And being okay to like examine both of them. Are we in, in agreement on the goals? And then as a separate sober conversation, can we agree on the method? And And part of that, my other big takeaway is separating particular experience and instructors from methodology, right? Yes. So it's possible that it's very, very possible phonics can be taught in a way that makes somebody hate reading uh, and hate mm -hmm. the exercise and hate, you know, not absorb anything. 
that doesn't mean phonics should be thrown out, right? If right. you don't like how phonics was taught in terms of just like the tone uh, and delivery, can you do it a different way and, and still utilize this super valuable tool? Right, right. Well, thanks, Emily. That was fun. Yeah, thank you. Hope everyone checks out checks out Souls of Story. Yeah, definitely. I definitely recommend that podcast. Um, and we'll put links in the description. Thank you, everyone.